This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. C-13 Originals. I remember seeing somebody ask John Gilmore, who was the saxophone player for Sun Ra's orchestra, and they said, how come you guys wear these sequined, you know, wild outfits, these sequined outfits and these wild clothes and this garb and all this kind of stuff? They wore different stuff every night, but they they always had these kind of outrageous sequined gowns and hats, and Sun Ra would wear antennas on his head and, you know, (laughs) all kinds of things like that. And it was all space-themed, you know, very outer space-themed. And the guy said, how come you guys dress up like that? And Gilmore just looked at him like, not like it was a stupid question, but he just looked at him and said, well, you, you got to wear your uniform. You can't go to work in your street clothes. You know, you, you got to have your uniform. And he was a, an ex-military guy, too. So maybe that was part of it for him. But I just thought it's a little bit the way I feel about the dress. Although for me... <laughs> It's sort of evolved into, you know, because people have asked me, you know, why do you wear that? You know, and I've asked myself, yeah, why do I wear that dress? You know, and it started off as a joke. I mean, a couple of friends of mine had gotten it from the free box at the Salvation Army. And it was in a pile of clothing that they were cutting up to use for material to make bags and dresses and patchwork things, you know, to sell it like the reggae fest. You know, I was like 19 years old, piecing together income and stuff. And. I just saw this thing in the pile and I threw it on. I had to tear the armpits out to get it over my shoulders, but I throw the thing on and one of the women that I was hanging out with says, uh, oh my God, you you look so funny. that You look like Barney Rubble. That was her comment. Was, you look like Barney Rubble. And I thought, oh, I'm going to wear this on stage tomorrow at our gig at Nectar's. So I did. And, you know, I was joking around. And the next day I came to do the gig and Trey said, where's the dress? You know, I was going to go play in my regular clothes. You know, I just wore it one night as a joke. And Trey said, where's the dress? If you don't wear the dress, it'll rot the gig. And I, yeah, you got to have the dress. Oh, okay. You know, so I, I then wore the dress for the next 36 years. That's fish drummer John Fishman describing how he has come to wear his uniform on stage for well over three decades. He shared this account while talking about the importance of visual design to the group. There are many elements to the band's design aesthetic, not the least of which is Fishman's decision to take the stage each night in a donut dress. In this episode, we're not only going to consider the band's sartorial choices, we're going to look at how the group has dressed the stage. We'll also delve into related decisions involving the quartet's logo, concert posters, and other aspects of its visual presentation. As we'll come to see, Fish is a true art rock band. I'm Dean Budnick, and this is Long May They Run. The Fish logo, much like John Fishman's Moo Moo, 
has been emblematic of the band, going all the way back to the Nectar's days. Guitarist Trey Anastasio designed the image while sitting in a classroom at the University of Vermont. I actually drew that logo, and my mind is blown that it actually still <laughs> exists and is floating around out there. I remember where I drew it. It's kind of funny. I drew it in the back row of this business class I was taking at UVM, which I never paid any attention to at all. I think I was in an available chair for an hour when I was drawing this logo, and it still exists today. During this formative era, while the band put in the hours to define and refine its sound, the group also prioritized its visual components. I made a bunch of the early posters as well. I think other people did too. I remember Mike and I going to try to find colored light bulbs to make a light show. We used to have a backdrop that we drew. It was like a grid, a patterned grid that we would hang behind the band. This was really cheap, hand-built stuff. And, you know, of course I drew the logo. And, of course made the posters and things like that. That's just what we did at the time. I think we were all in sort of from, from day one. Bassist Mike Gordon drew inspiration and received assistance from the artist Marjorie Minkin, who also happens to be his mother. She had a lot of an effect on me because she always seemed to be pushing her own boundaries. So she would do something for a while, painting abstract on canvas in large forms, and that would be a few years, and then she would try something new. And I remember when I was eight or something, she started putting three-dimensional forms within the canvases and then having multiple layers of canvas, multiple planes, and then painting on that. And then she went through a phase of painting on mylar and then scraping some of it back so it would mix the image with the mirror. She was constantly pushing herself in terms of learning and stretching the medium of what she was doing, and eventually changing to painting on Lexan. And at one point she came up to Vermont and one of the three top holography studios was here, and she would make a hologram of a transparent piece that she had done out of warped Lexan, and then incorporate that hologram within another Lexan piece, all transparent, and they had not never done anything like that in the holography studio. The point I'm making is that this is a woman who challenges herself to push the limits of her boundaries, but then spends a lot of time at each phase trying to see what it'll do. So that's hugely influential to someone like me, especially with music and then my other creative urges. When I was little, creative was the biggest word in the household with capital C. Over the years, she created a few backdrops for the band, known by fans as the Minkins. We were still playing in Nectars when she made the first piece. There were three versions of backdrops. And the first one might have been the coolest in a certain way. It was a 20-foot canvas that's all silver and kind of light blue and light green. So it's almost aquatic seeming and very reflective. And we used to hang it behind us across the whole Nectars stage. I think what was made next was eight four by eight Lexan pieces. Unlike my mom's normal work, which is warped and multiple layered, it was one layer each translucent with paint on the layers. They'd be vertical and swinging freely, and then they would react to the lights. And when we got to a slightly bigger arenas 
A bigger version was concocted where there were just three pieces, but they were huge and they fanned upward. So it was a middle one going sort of straight up, but maybe in kind of a V-shape with a rounded top. And then two like that fanning off to the left and to the right. And again, with it's acrylic paint, but there's iridescent particles in the paint. So it changes a lot with the light. And then at that point, we were sort of ready to move on. But I think it was even symbolic, acknowledging the role of our parents, and maybe not just my mom, but having supportive parents, creative parents that were encouraging us in these ways. Still, going back to the early days of the band, a few years before the final Minkins, other creative people lent their assistance as well. One of the cool things that happened is we would start connecting with people and the fish world grew. So one of the things that happened was we went to Goddard and Paige was friends with Jim Pollock. Jim, of course, is an incredible artist, but he was really just a guy that we were hanging out with. Paige introduced us to Jim and we were all on campus down there at Goddard. Jim Pollock enrolled at Goddard after failing out of Syracuse University because he was spending most of his time drawing rather than focusing on schoolwork. We call it Camp Goddard, because there was less than 100 people on campus. It was like in the 60s of us. In the middle of the woods with a lot of throwback hippie people teaching us about permaculture and, you know, reading the Communist Manifesto and, you know, all the types of things that most of the country was not doing. Basically, you had no grades. Everything was based on this John Dewey free-thinking system, and everything had to do with knowing, doing, and being, and kind of like absorbing rather than processing knowledge. And uh, when I left, I thought I hadn't learned anything. But the more you get away from something like that, the more you realize you learned a lot. It takes a long time for that stuff to sink in. But they taught us how to become very good students of our own, you know, being our own teachers and just continuing to learn forever. In the fall of 1984, future fish keyboard player Paige McConnell transferred to Goddard from Southern Methodist University, and Pollock befriended him. Paige and I had like a little band called Tom's Sub Shop, in which, uh, yeah, I played, I still play guitar, but not well. And then like, we were just like hanging out and Paige was there and like, he was an awesome piano player. He would play the piano and I was like a fledgling guitar player, but like, there was a lot of downtime. We're in the middle of the woods in Vermont. So like he taught me a lot of just basic musical stuff and songs and chord progressions. And then we put a little band together and he was playing with a bunch of people on top of like teaching us a little music. And then um, that's when they would have like this yearly spring fest at Goddard in which they'd put a bunch of money together and get some bands, just like an outdoor music festival at the college. And because of a snafu scheduling error, this one band couldn't show up and Fish showed up instead. And Paige, you know, and we're all sitting there watching this band. They were like, you got to play with them. <laughs> I mean, it was inevitable. Everyone was like, oh, yeah, you got to play with these guys. Because everyone knew Paige, and Paige was an awesome piano player, and these guys needed a piano player. 
not only did Page join the band, but two members of the band joined him at Goddard, as Trey and Fishman enrolled at the college while Mike remained at UVM. Jim was just a buddy and an incredible artist, an incredible person, but he was on campus at Goddard. And Paige and Fish and I were there. And it had always been a very radical school. I think Cecil Taylor used to hang around there. Maybe David Mamet went there. There's a history of left-of-center artists that came through that school. And so we felt like we fit right in. It was not a place where people who were working in the arts were following trends of the day. I remember there was a building that we played in at Goddard. It was called the Design Center. And the whole thing was this weird, strange building that somebody had built where you'd lean on a wall and it would open like it was on some kind of hinges. We used to do Halloween shows there, very early Halloween shows with our friends Ninja Custodian. And it was just, you know, psychedelics and all night long and sweat lodges outside and paintings on the wall and... You know, so it's it a vibrant artistic community that informed all of this that we were just a small part of. Way back then when they started playing places like in Burlington, I'd do little cartoons, Xerox them and put them up around Burlington. That was my start. Early on, it was mostly fed by just over-the-top kind of underground comic stuff. I just love the really crazy, over-the-top stuff. I was probably like a lot of reaction to what was going on with the conservatism of the United States and wanting to like react against it. Pollock's work gained a wider audience in 1992 when the band asked him to create new interior art for Junta after Elektra Records decided to release an expanded edition of the group's 1989 album. Pollock's surreal illustrations, including a series of dancing noses, were unlike those on any other contemporary albums, leading potential listeners to cast aside preconceived notions. The same can be said for Fish's 1996 record, Billy Breathes, which features a slightly distorted image of a smiling Mike Gordon. We were in love with this album we were making. And getting calls from management, John, you guys got to start thinking about an album cover. And it's like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then <laughs> this went on for weeks. And then it was, you know, you've got two weeks to decide what you want to do for an album cover. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, you've got four days to decide. <laughs> We're working on the album. And <laughs> finally, the way I remember it is, it was, you've got two hours to come up with an album cover. And there was some kind of lo-fi computer, like a mimeograph machine or something. And Mike just snapped that picture. And we're like, we were kind of doing it as a, you know, here's your album cover, buddy. That kind of thing. But, so that was it. There wasn't a lot of thought. I think this is the theme that you're starting to see. There usually wasn't. <laughs> you know, that just became the album cover in the space of about 10 minutes. And... The most incredible part was the inside of the vinyl. If you open it up, the four of us all had scissors and all of these old pictures, and we were cutting stuff out and gluing it, like gluing this stuff and scotch taping it onto this poster board. <laughs> and that was the inside cover, all those pictures of Fishman, which we cut out. And it's so good. I love it. I love it. 
And I remember Steve was so mad, Steve Lillywhite, our producer, because he really liked the album. And he kept saying, bloody sleeve, because he's British. Like, he thought it would have been a huge record if it hadn't been for the bloody sleeve. <laughs> I like it better in the bloody sleeve, personally. The cover of the group's next album, 1997's Slip, Stitch, and Pass, required a bit more planning. Celebrated artist Storm Thurgeson created the image of a man running on a beach, pulling a giant ball of yarn. When I was young and getting into music, I was obsessed, as all my friends were, with Pink Floyd. And Storm Thorgerson was the visual artist who did all those iconic covers, including, you know, Led Zeppelin, Houses of the Holy, and Led Zeppelin IV, and Pink Floyd, all the Pink Floyd covers, and The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway by Genesis and Peter Gabriel. And there was an artistic quality to the music that was being made. There was a visual quality that was very thought-provoking and trippy. That was so cool working with him because we idolized him, of course. And it wasn't a digital image. He built it and put it on the beach. He built a ball of yarn and he thought that the music sounded like knitting and he wanted to do a ball of yarn with a guy running, holding the yarn. So in order to do that, he built this giant ball of yarn it was actually a half a ball of yarn. The back was flat and put it on the beach and got a real guy to run. So that's the way this stuff used to be done. I think this is very powerful that it was real. And it does kind of align with our mentality with the festivals and all the New Year's events. And we've always enjoyed having that visual element with the band. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. On December 31st, 1993, Fish performed its largest New Year's Eve performance to date at the Worcester Centrum in Worcester, Mass. For that show and the three leading up to it, the band performed inside an aquarium set that included seaweed, a giant clam, and various aquatic creatures hanging down above the quartet. This occurred in part through a chance meeting with Chris McGregor seven months earlier at the Laguna Seca Days Festival in Monterey, California. McGregor was the lighting director for the event, and over the previous decade had also been the LD for the avant-garde musical collective The Residence. 
they were closing the show. And at the time, I had never heard of them and thought it was interesting that they were at the top of the bill, considering I had no idea who they were. But it became apparent during the day that clearly a large portion of the audience that day was there to see that band. And during their sound check, I had something out on the stage that needed attending to, and I was out there working on whatever it was that needed fixing. And Trey, who was standing right by me, looked down and noticed that I was wearing a T-shirt with the residence iconic eyeball image that has become associated with them and sort of their logo over the years. And Trey clearly was familiar with them. He saw that I was wearing the T-shirt, and he said, oh, hey, the residents, cool. And I said, oh, you know them. And he goes, yeah, they're a great band, and they're amazing to see live. And he goes on and says, well, you're a lighting guy or something. You should definitely check these guys out if you get a chance, because they have the great light shows, just fantastic. He said, yeah, we saw them at the Beacon a couple years back, and they were amazing. And I said, thanks. That was my work, actually. I did the lighting for that. And he stops at this point, <laughs> like he's not, he's not even just, you know, goofing off on the guitar. He just stops and he shouts over, hey, Fish, Fish, come here, man, come here. <laughs> and Fishman walks over. Of course, I had no idea who these guys were. I'd never met them before or, or even heard of the band. And he points at me and he goes, this is the guy, man, this is the guy. And Fish is like, what? He goes, the lights, the, did the lights for the residents. This is the guy. <laughs> At that point, both of them just start this, we're not worthy, we're not worthy thing. Trey later followed up on that Wayne's World moment. I really enjoyed the show. I thought they were great musically. And then we um, went off, you know, in all directions at the end. And I never thought of it again until a few months later when the phone rang. And it was Trey on the other end who'd tracked down my phone number and called me up and introduced him. So I don't know if you remember me. I'm the guy I'm in this band. And we started talking about New Year's, what turned into the giant fish tank. Then they came through town and they were staying at a hotel in the city. And I went in and we had a big band meeting and creative meeting and talked all kinds of ideas around. And I think the conversation had started with like putting fish in its drum set inside an aquarium tank. And it just kind of grew from there as it does with these guys. <laughs> it's very fun working with them because they're just, they're just sitting there thinking of things that will crack each other up. And through all that madness, you know, there might be one thing that's like, hey, wait a minute, we could actually do that. Another such example is the hot dog that the band used to sail across the Boston Garden on December 31st, 1994. In the very first episode, Trey described the process that led to its creation. Chris provides a few more details. Originally it was, you know, each band member was gonna fly individually. And at some point we decided literally just putting them in flying harnesses and flying the four of them was problematic for a number of reasons. It was the fact of getting them in fully harnessed and out and all of that in the middle of a live performance was too cumbersome and time-consuming. So instead it was, I'll bring you a vehicle that you get on and the worst you have to do is, you know, put on a seatbelt or something and then we'll take you out on your trip across Boston Garden. And literally designed four different vehicles 
I still have the illustrations in my office. They were like, I don't know if you're familiar with the comic book character Lobo, who's like a intergalactic space biker, like a Hell's Angels kind of guy. And he's got this thing that isn't quite a motorcycle, but it sure resembles one. And it, and he flies around the galaxy in it. And then yeah, I sort of came up with four versions of that, including the one that Fishman would ride, which was literally built out of an Electrolux vacuum cleaner and had the skids, the sled, and had the hose and the uh, the head built into the front end of it. It was great. looked great. Uh, but that proved to be impossibly expensive. Four different rigging routes, four different rigging systems, you know, all of the stuff that had to go into that. And so we were on a phone call, and I'm saying what we need is a single vehicle that can carry all four of you. Maybe it looks like a submarine or, and at that point, I think it was fish, but it might've been Trey, but someone goes like a hot dog. (laughs) Can you imagine like a hot dog and everyone cracks up and Trey goes, wait a minute. (laughs) And so, yeah, a hot dog. I can do that. That's another one that's easy to do the model for, you know, go out to Safeway and get a bun put a wiener in it and take it out to the shop and go, okay, like this, only bigger. (laughs) Another essential artistic collaborator has been lighting designer Chris Kuroda, who has contributed his viewpoint for three decades. He's so talented and so unique. I mean, it was just one of these really organic forming relationships that He's able to follow the music as much as any of the other band members follow the music. You know, he can follow the music the way I can follow it with drums or Trey can with guitar. You know, that we all just listen and go, and and he just represents his improvisational contribution visually is really the only difference. But if it were a piano or whatever, I mean, he's just doing it visually. And that's just a relationship that has grown organically over the same 30-some years. And it's evolved at the same time the band has evolved. And so it's just this organic organism at this point that's 36 years old. For a few tours in the mid-90s, when Kuroda worked with multiple lighting consoles, he hired Chris McGregor as the second operator. At the beginning of the tours, often set up for rehearsal in some arena somewhere, some, you know, it might be like college basketball arena or something bigger, probably where the first show of the tour was going to be. And we'd be there for three or four days, and the band would come in and rehearse and check and do whatever they were doing every day, and then we'd show up early in the evening and do all-nighters and just sit there Literally, there are times when the entire arena, completely empty except for Chris and me, sitting at the board, painting these beautiful pictures with these giant light rigs. And, you know, we'd go off on, uh, oh, oh, that color combination, that's great. That's going in, you know, Chris has a numbering system for naming his cues. And it would be like that color combination, I call that fruity. And that's, you know, green and magenta and yellow or something. So that's a 400 cue. That'll go into the 400s, you know, for looks that are using the fruity color combination. And then we'd build a bunch of fruity looks after that. And then we'd go into something else. I had a a series of looks on one tour that were all inspired by 
the light shows I'd seen from Genesis, which was one of my favorite live shows ever to go see. And the band that pretty much funded the development of the moving light and were the first ones to use it. There were a lot of Genesis looks that had their own series of numbers. And then there were M looks, which was McGregor looks that he would put in. And and we just sit there and go crazy with it, and, you know, hour after hour. Sometimes, you know, one guy would be on a roll and the other guy would hop on a bike that we had there and just go off and do loops around the arena, you know, on the concourse or something, and just flying around the arena of the bike, you know, for 20 minutes, half an hour, and coming back, you know, with a couple of bottles of water, sit down, and, and Chris would go, okay, now you. <laughs> and he'd get on the bike and go right off and until the sun came up, you know, and then other techs started wandering in and we'd slowly shut down and go back to the hotel and get some sleep. McGregor has continued to work with the band on numerous projects over the years, including the 2003 Tower Jam at the IT Festival that we examined in episode one, and the chilling, thrilling sounds of the haunted house performance that we'll look at next time. He recalls another New Year's Eve pitch that didn't quite come to pass. We were having this session and they were just talking about, okay, so at one point there's like all these photographers, they're like press photographers, but they're like guys from the 50s, right? From the movies from the 50s with the suits and the fedora hats and the things sticking in the hat band that says press. And they've all got these cameras with these really big flash bulbs and, and they're running around taking notes and watching the scene and everything. And at one point, you know, out in the concourse somewhere, they do that thing where they all run to the bank at payphones at the same time. You know, there's a wooden row of old-style payphones that are like phone booths, and they all run into it at the same time and knock it over, and it falls down. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> and you're like, well, that would be good. Yeah, out in the concourse, you say. <laughs> are we going to focus our budget and our creative time on you know, I, I can see the experience and the fan going home going, hey, did you hear about that thing out by the beer stand? So I would often try to be the voice trying to get it back. Well, let's get this back up on the stage, whatever it is we're doing, or at least in the big room where everybody can see it at once. Still, that's not always the case. Sometimes when it comes to performance art, a great gag is a great gag which leads us to the mime field. When Fish released the map for its 2018 Curveball Festival, there was a section in the far rear of the concert space identified as the mime field. This was a concept that the band had been contemplating for many years. The idea of forcing festival goers to make a decision. They could take a long route to get to a particular destination, like their campground, or they could navigate through a terrifying field of mimes. So the mime field was the shortest distance between the public area and like the campground, right? So instead of putting concessions or something there that people would have to rock around, you'd have this field. It was obviously the shortest distance between two points. It was the convenient walk, right? But in the field, there would be like mimes, yeah, then, yeah, but I think the original idea was that they would be in like holes in the ground. Like you'd actually have holes in the ground and then they would like rise up out of these holes. Like they'd be on these little elevator thing, lifts and things and you'd be walking through and as you're walking through like 
these people miming, like doing the hand motions for, you know, walls and windows and, you know, the things that mimes do. And they'd be like in your face, you know, and you'd have to <laughs> walk around the mimes and there'd be like these obstacles in the field. And, you know, real pain in the ass. People are just like, uh, I don't really want to walk through the minefield, but uh, my tent is, otherwise I have to walk all the way around, you know? So like you sort of reluctantly go in the mine, and then the mimes would like really accost you, you know? They didn't touch you or anything because they're miming, you know? But this idea was around for years, you know? And we finally, we didn't have holes drilled in the ground, but we finally were had the minefield ready to go. <laughs> Curveball. However, Curveball was canceled just prior to soundcheck when the New York State Department of Health determined that torrential rains and area flooding had compromised the drinking water. At this point, the horrors of the minefield became a little too real for Fish's drummer. My other three bandmates leave after the whole thing gets shut down. Everybody's bummed out, you know, and so everyone's starting to depart. I stick around because I got all my kids are there. They, you know, I've got little kids are playing in the playground, whatever. My wife was there with a bunch of her friends. My friends were there. I hadn't, you know, there were some friends that I really hadn't seen in a long time. Fuck it, I'm just going to go out and party. What the hell? There was a couple of the businesses that were like, well, whatever. We got all this food and beer and everything and that we were going to sell over the weekend. And we can't pack all this shit back up and it's all going to go bad. So let's just have a party. And you know what I mean? And so I go to this party and all the mimes are in this restaurant <laughs> and I'm texting Trey like, oh my God, I'm taking pictures and little films. I'm like, I'm with the mimes. They're here, the, you know, like, the <laughs> and I was taking all these photos with the mimes and sending them to my bandmates and none of them talked to me either. Like none of them would even, I tried to get them to like break character and like none of them broke character. They must've been really well coached, like under no circumstances, you must be a mime no matter what, you know, and be really annoying about it. As they did their job. I mean, when I was there, they were like in my face and, you know, like really like making me sit down on their knees and like doing all kinds of, you know, stuff. Like, you know, mimes do that. They'll guide you like, here, come over here. You do this. You know, they like hold their hand out like you're supposed to hold your hand out because they're going to give you some pretend object that you have to hold and all that. They were doing all that shit. And I was just trying to get a beer. <laughs> I was like, ah, okay, yeah, you guys, it's great. I'm so, I'm so glad you're here. And then it became like, all right, look, I'm trying to talk to my friend. I just want a beer. Like, <laughs> I don't want to hold your imaginary object. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> 
Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Poster art has become increasingly entwined with the fish experience. Although the band produced a few posters very early on to raise awareness of Burlington gigs, momentum began to pick up in the mid-90s. Jim Pollock appeared at the Clifford Ball in 1996, setting up in Ball Square to demonstrate his woodblock technique. He then handed out free 7x5-inch prints of a smug-looking fish, the sea creature, not the drummer, to anyone who could answer trivia questions, such as who wrote The House of Seven Gables? If you're playing at home, the correct answer is Nathaniel Hawthorne. In February of the next year, Fish experimented by hiring renowned design firm House Industries to create three posters for shows in London, Amsterdam, and Paris that formed a triptych. Then, Pollock was on site at the Great Wendt Festival in August 1997 producing a more traditional event poster. It was a rainy weekend. I was printing with water-based inks, so most of them got messed up. Yeah, there's only a handful of them. And then, like, Danny Clinch took a photo of me printing one of them with Paige in the photo, and it ended up in the fish book. And, yeah, that photo, I mean, that was helpful to me. People saw my process, and photo itself like probably had a lot to do with my career. Even so, Pollock took the reins at a November 1998 UIC Pavilion show, bringing his own posters into the venue and handing them to folks at the merch booth to sell. I would do these linoleum prints at their festival and then uh, I was like, oh, I should make linoleum print posters for you guys. And then, you know, kind of falling on deaf ears for a while. But then, like, they were coming to UIC Pavilion in 1998. And I was just the year after I had done, like, The Great Went Robot. And that had done well. And I just, like, made a whole bunch of posters and brought it to their merch people without their approval or asking them. I was just like, screw it. I'm just going to, like, make these posters and have you guys <laughs> give them to the merch people. And it worked out after that. I've kind of become like a full-time printmaker, linoleum print artist almost. Public interest in concert posters had dwindled a bit in the 1990s, particularly as the internet diminished the value of posters as promotional tools. However, Fish fans increasingly were drawn to posters, both as keepsakes and also as collectibles. The website expressobeans.com soon launched to track Pollock's work, then added other fish artists, and eventually posters from outside the fish world. Jason Kazarowski, a Chicago-based photographer and artist, observes, 
nowadays, just as folks will sit in line to be on the rail at the show, you've got folks who will sit in line for the poster for eight or nine hours prior to the show. It just exploded, and fans started paying line sitters to sit in line for them because they didn't want to wait for these (laughs) posters to be released, and they wanted to enjoy their days. So they would hire folks to essentially sit in line for them until they regained their position and were able to purchase the piece. In the same way that Fish has established a musical feedback loop with the audience, the band's commitment to the visual arts has prompted the group's fans, including Kazarowski, to create their own posters. You know, my first poster that I created, I was a student at UIC, and I didn't have enough money to see Phil Lesh play that evening. And so I went to the Kinko's next door and photocopied 50 posters that I had doodled in between classes and went and sold them for $10 a print in the parking lot and raised enough money to not only buy tickets for that show, but enough gas money to get down to Big Cypress. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to create some posters for Big Cypress as well. One of the Fish fans who purchased a poster from him at Big Cypress was Pete Mason, who would go on to launch his own fan art project. After first seeing Fish in 1997, Mason really connected with the band after attending Fish's Camp Oswego event in July 1999, then Woodstock 99 the following weekend. The two festivals couldn't have been more dissimilar from start to finish, and I got to experience both was at Oswego. I like fully got into it. I had the best time over those three days. Saw some of the coolest sets of music and versions of songs still to this day. And a week later, I went to Woodstock 99, and that was a complete shit show and made me appreciate the Fish Festival even more. For the community, the pricing on things, the dealing with the elements on everybody's part, I felt much more at home there. So that's where it all kind of started. Five years later, after attending the Coventry Festival, which Fish had announced would be its swan song, Pete was prompted to create a 422-page book highlighting the community's artistic endeavors. My goal initially with fan art was to preserve a part of the Fish community that I really enjoyed and appreciated but had just scratched the surface on on my own. And on the way home, I started reflecting a little bit on the weekend and, you know, before getting back to life. And that was one thing that I really was going to miss was all the the fan shirts and the fan stickers and art and creations and stuff. I, I barely had scratched the surface. I owned maybe five or six posters. So we come up with this project and, you know, it's to accumulate all the art that Fish fans made from the early 90s and all the way through Coventry. And I decided to make a book out of it because that just made sense. I did want to find a way to you know, make this beneficial to charity and all artists understood nobody's compensated getting into this. We're preserving this art and making a book out of it and we give the money to the Mockingbird Foundation, which supports Music Ed and was founded by Fish fans. So from late 2004 through the end of 2008, I collected 1,600 pieces of art and I want to say it was 400 posters, 600 shirts about 300, 400 stickers, there's about 200 license plates and another 100, 200 miscellaneous items from tattoos to hats to those like Livestrong type bracelets, just a ton of stuff. Just a wide variety of art that I really liked and people would start to reach out to me like, hey, I heard you're doing this uh, book, I'd like to contribute this. That community spirit continues to inform a series of fan art events that Pete hosts showcasing the work of artists with a charitable component as well. In many respects, this is a successor to The Mock Show, 
a poster event that Kazarowski launched in Hampton, Virginia during Fish's return in 2009 and produced intermittently for a few years. One of the folks displaying her work at the recent fan art show at Mohegan Sun Casino in July was Stephanie Contoli. She has created Forbin's Closet. That's Forbin with the PH. An Etsy store with what she describes as musically inspired, wearable and usable items. Designs include a sloth with a martini glass and an antelope on a bike, as well as donut leggings. Stephanie has found wider appeal for these goods than she initially anticipated. They do other street festivals and music fests. They do a lot of gay prides. And a lot of that crosses over to just a generic street fest or a gay pride. And people buy my fish designs often, and they have no idea. But there's a lot of fish people, too, because I'll have the donuts, and it's kind of like our flag of the community where people will be like, like we're kind of just everywhere. Ah, the donut which brings us all the way back to Fishman's dress. Let's continue with the drummer's stage attire. For a period of time in mid-1997, he shifted to a suit. I always liked, in the big band era, how these guys like Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa and uh, Max Roach and, you know, the great jazz drummers, the big band era in particular, everybody was wearing a suit. And they had a nice suit. And, you know, these guys would be tearing it up on the drums and looking like they were going to a wedding, right? I just thought that was so cool. They had their shiny shoes. And so for a period of time, I wore a three-piece suit. But I don't know. Well, it's not nearly as comfortable. And ultimately, you know, my bandmates were like, you got to put the dress back on. So he did. Although in the fall of 1998, he added a Viking helmet. It was a plastic helmet from, like, Vegas in some casino that had a pile of Viking helmets. And I grabbed one, and I, it looked really funny. I put it on my head. I was wearing the dress and wearing the Viking helmet. It just it looked amazing. It was like Hagar the Horrible or something, you know? So, <laughs> so I started wearing that. There was a chin strap on it, I think. The horns were hollow plastic, you know? It wasn't like a heavy Viking helmet with like actual sheep horns or something on it. It was this plastic Halloween mask weight type thing. That being said, it was slippery, hard plastic. It just, you know, really stay in place. I think it did have a little chin strap though. <laughs> I love that thing. I actually might go back to the helmet sometime. As for the dress itself, it's like a logo almost at this point. I mean, there's so many people that have the donut thing, and it's taken on a life of its own, you know? It's a part of the band's visual existence. There was also a time when he considered ditching it. When we came back in 09, I was self-conscious about the dress. Yeah, I didn't want to wear the dress. I kind of like felt stupid in it, you know? And, you know, my bandmates were just like, you're stupid out of it. <laughs> so he's come to realize that the donut pattern mumu isn't just a peculiar item of clothing. It embodies Fish's musical mindset and shared point of view. Like John Gilmore said, I put on my uniform, ready to go to work, right? It's like putting on your spacesuit or your, your adventure suit. And so I feel like by putting that on, it's like the dress of humility. I'm putting myself in a place where I can't take myself seriously. It's impossible to wear the dress 
and take yourself seriously. So that means the only thing that I can take seriously is the music and what we're doing up there. Next time on Long May They Run. What do 70s rock radio, sound effects records, and Scandinavia have in common? Halloween, of course. Long May They Run is a creation and production of C13 Originals. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, Lloyd Lockeridge, and me. Season one is written by me and directed by Lloyd Lockeridge. Produced by Perry Crowell, Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production coordination by Terrence Malingone. And production support by Sean Cherry. Creative artwork by Kurt Courtney. Press by Hilary Schuff. And marketing by Josephina Francis. The theme song is Right Off, written by Miles Davis. And performed by Kyle Hollingsworth, Jake Sinninger, Dave Watts, and Garrett Sayers. And mixed by Andrew Dros Liposchuk. A special thank you to Rich Schaefer and to the band, band management, and all who participated in this season. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.